The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street. Here is your top five at five recession on the way. Stock snapping a two-day losing streak despite red flags from the bond market. New warnings from one Fed chief ahead of next month's policy decision and why higher borrowing costs look all but certain. In Ukraine, the West weighing new sanctions against Russia over horrific scenes from the war against civilians. In corporate news, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz back in the C-suite is making his voice heard already the big change he is proposing. And Tesla out with its latest delivery numbers. And investors should like the news. We'll tell you about them on this Monday, April 4th. And this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and as always, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Before we get started, a big congratulations to the University of South Carolina women's basketball team. The Gang Cops actually pretty much owned the entire game against UConn's Huskies in the NCAA championship, and they ended up winning 64-49. to That is South Carolina's second national championship. We'll get more on that. A bit later on, but congrats to everybody down there in Columbia, South Carolina. All right, right now, though, let's see if your Monday money is winning. Stock futures right now, they are not. They are slightly down. I mean, very fractionally, and of course, it is very early as well. In fact, you can see there it's a mixed trade. At this hour, the futures, they kind of swing wildly. So far, we're a big one for one in April. All major averages did rise on Friday. Investors not spooked, at least not yet, by the two and 10 year yield curve. Very brief inversion. So let's see where we are right now. And we are not at that inversion. The 10 year at 2.39, two year at 2.45. Of course, that inversion again, if you're new joining us, where the yield on the two year is higher than the interest rate on the 10 year. Let's see if oil can stay below $100. And it basically is right now. It's at 99. No, it's not. See, again, I. You say stuff 20 seconds ago and it changes. Well, it was at $100.22. COVID lockdowns really still impacting global demand. That is probably the main driver of prices right now, what's happening in China. There's also a lot of chatter about that big release of our emergency oil stockpiles, which should get us close, maybe not right there, but close to 1 million barrels a day being released starting in mid-May. Of course, a lot still depends on whether refineries, which are already running above 90% capacity, will be able to buy the added oil. And if there is pipeline and rail capacity to take it, there are still lots of variables around oil prices right now. By the way, Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is on this hour to talk more about it. You're going to want to hear what he's got to say. All right, around the world, a mostly higher session in Asia, with Hong Kong jumping nearly 2%. Also in news, saying its chief executive, Carrie Lam, will not seek re-election to run Hong Kong. Turning out of Europe, Julietta Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom, and she has got your early trade and some key headlines there. Julietta, what's going on? 
Brian, good morning. Well, interestingly, despite that strong handover from Asia, as you just described, European markets have been trading on the back foot. But much like the oil price, which just moved in front of your eyes, I am seeing European markets turn green right now. We were seeing the majority of these markets in the red just moments ago. The FTSE MIB has now crossed into positive territory. We were trading uh, lower for the most part this morning. The CAC 40 also just crossing into positive territory. So positive momentum seems to be building here. Of course, still very muted in terms of the magnitude of the move higher. But the direction of change, certainly notable. The DAX still in the red, down about 20 basis points or so this morning. Now, investors here keeping their eyes firmly fixed on what's happening in Ukraine with European leaders calling for more sanctions against Russia after Ukraine accused Russia, of course, over the weekend of war crimes. Um, from a sector perspective, this is what the breakdown looks like. We've now got uh, healthcare out in front, up about 1.2%, the best performing basket of stocks in Europe. Um, food and Bev up about seven tenths of a percent household goods and media on the downside. We are seeing underperformance in those cyclical stocks, oil and gas down about half a percent, uh, basic resources and industrials. But um, clearly the picture becoming a little bit more positive. But overall, Brian, fairly stable start to the to the week. And a very stable wall graphic there, Juliana. Green on top, red on the bottom. It's all very symmetrical. Nice start to the Monday. Juliana, thank you. All right, let's get now to some of this morning's top corporate stories, including more pay for those in the C-suite. Bertha Coombs is here now with that and more. Bertha, good morning. Good morning, Brian. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly saying the case for a half-point interest rate hike in May is strengthening. In an interview with the Financial Times, Daly argues the latest data has shown the labor market to be, quote, tight to an unsustainable level. Daly's comments come after Friday's jobs report showed the unemployment rate falling to a half-century low. U.S. chief executives are on track to see record earnings this year, widening the gap between their staff to an historic amount. The median pay for a CEO jumping to a record $14.2 million in 2021, with the pay ratio comparing an executive's pay to the median employee jumping to 245 from 192 in 2020. Some of the recipients of the largest packages include Discovery's David Zasloff at 24.7 million, or is that 247 million, really? And Amazon's Andy Jaffe at almost uh, 20. I'm I'm sorry, I've got to put my glasses on because I'm those numbers don't even look right. Yeah, they are. It's 213 million dollars. Starbucks share is under pressure this morning in the pre-market. CEO Howard Schultz announcing a halt to the coffee giant stock buyback program, his first act on his return as the company's CEO. Schultz writing in an open letter that the decision will allow the company to invest more into its people and stores. Brian Schultz says saying he will be traveling is also saying that he'll be traveling around the country to connect with Starbucks employees amid supply challenges and a growing employee led push for unionizing, including here in New York State. I'm sorry, I had trouble reading those numbers. I thought there must be a decibel point in there, but no. No, I mean, these listen, these are big numbers. And with all due respect to the men and women who make it to those slots a lot of it is luck a lot of it's internal politicking and you know you last a year or two and then you get still paid out i mean it, it is the numbers are big 
Let's just say that. I'll, I'll leave it for others to judge, but those yeah. numbers are. There was no missing. There was no missing comma or decimal Bertha. It's hard I to believe. I know. I was thinking there has to be a decimal point in there. Whoosh. You got to wonder what goes on. I mean, Howard Schultz. I think it's the second time he has stepped down and come back, right? I think his. Yeah. He started the company, and uh, it's. I think it's his baby, and he, and he asserts himself. We'll see, Bertha. We'll see in a few minutes. Thank you. Northern Michigan University's <laughs> own Howard Schultz. All right, back down to the markets and worries around the potential for a recession continuing to trickle up. Your next guest says, yeah, it's a real possibility. Incites Russia for pushing us from inflation to superinflation. Annika Trion is the managing director of equities at Kempen and joins us now. Annika, it's good to have you back on. Uh, I do worry tremendously about Europe. The, 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 the increase in costs, particularly in electricity generation, is going to send millions uh, deeper into poverty or into poverty. If not, they're already there. Uh, we're going to start to see European companies shut off production if natural gas flows start to trickle down. They've already said that. Uh, how worried are you about the global economy and the American economy? Yeah, th- there's a lot to be worried about. And I mean, if you if you zoom out, what markets have had to digest over the last five, six weeks is pretty unfathomable. And I think it's just left markets schizophrenic. So let's let's first talk about the global economy. You know, we're facing inverted yield curves. Everybody is citing the statistical probability of a recession, given what's happening in the two tens. We can get lost and caught in all sorts of technicalities. What matters is the following. We are we are entering a growth, a growth slowdown regime for sure. Right. It's inevitable. And it's an inevitable aftermath of, what is it, almost $10 trillion that were pumped into the economy on the back of COVID. And how worried do we need to be? I mean, if you look back, you know, when, when 210 started to invert in the past, you would see that a recession would take place around six to 24 months after that. This time round, you know, let's forget that this time is different rhetoric. Let's just zoom in into what's happening right now. And what's happening right now is that Rates are, you know, yields are actually negative. Real yields are negative prior to this point. Normally, yields are positive as they enter a, into a recessionary environment. Yeah. We're almost five percentage points negative. That's different. You know, the other, the other thing is different is look at the power of the employment market, at the labor markets. And, I mean, the other thing is, which I think is the most fascinating, we are totally turbocharged. Usually, you see this environment start to take place around two years after the first rate hike. We're about two to three weeks afterwards. So what do we do? With with all that in mind, Annika, is it just put all of our money in cash or gold and let it ride? I mean, if if you're out there watching, you're up early or maybe in Europe or Asia right now uh, because we go around the world and you are agreeing with you. What's the move? Well, What's the move? It's such a challenging question. And the reason it's such a challenging question, you know, hiding in cash is a very painful trade, looking at the rate of inflation. And I think we've all been very humbled, including the central bankers, of course, that trying to predict inflation is missionary impossible because we're entering a sort of inflationary discovery environment. And I think the only lesson we've learned looking at the structural issues around supply chains, you know, the Russian war is the tip of the iceberg there is that inflationary forces are far more structural than we thought. So, you know, to that point, cash is rather painful. Um, you know, the equities market, and this is, this is what I think is fascinating. This is the schizophrenia again. We are in a war environment. 
we are all talking about the, the you know, 90% probability of a recession taking place. Yet equity markets are very, yeah. very strong. Yes, Q1 was weak, but I mean, US equity markets are a few percentage points off their all-time highs. Yeah, it's uh, sorry for the music blasting in there, Annika. It is it is a truly uh, more and more people I talk to. We speak with this on the show, say the visibility right now is so low. And if people tell you they know exactly what's going to happen in stocks, that they're, they're probably making it up because we have no idea what's going to happen in Ukraine and Russia with Europe, with recession. It is a very tough environment. Annika Trion, uh, Kempen, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. We'll speak with you again soon. All right, folks, we have got a lot more to do on this busy Monday. And when we come back, the unusual reason we could have a shortage of one key building material this summer. Plus, your morning RBI with six big ESG-related stock picks. Later on, why that ESG trade is continuing to hit the energy sector where it hurts the most. Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is here. Very busy hour still ahead. We roll on right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome or welcome back. Let's get now the very latest out of Ukraine and some new horrors on the ground. Scenes of what appears to be a massacre of civilians in a town outside of Kiev. It says the U.S. and European allies reportedly preparing more sanctions against Russia. Ukraine's top prosecutor revealing yesterday that more than 400 bodies, mostly civilians, were found in several towns recaptured from Russian forces. Ukraine is accusing Russia of crimes against humanity. Moscow denies the claim. According to the Washington Post, Biden administration officials have discussed intensifying their sanctions and targeting areas of the Russian economy not yet hit so far. That would include things like mining, transport, and more areas in the banking and financial sector. European leaders have signaled the potential for similar new action. In the meantime, Germany's defense minister says that Europe should talk about banning the import of natural gas from Russia. Natural gas spot prices, by the way, are still above 30 U.S. dollars equivalent. Of course, what we pay here is just over $5. So in some ways, natural gas there is about six times more expensive. Well, aside from the horrific human toll, the economic impact of Russia's war in Ukraine also growing. And that is not just in Europe. It's starting to hit a bunch of different industries that you may not even have thought about. We certainly didn't. One of those is cement. Well, you may not know it, but the U.S. buys a lot of cement for the country of Turkey. But now, because shipping and power costs are so high, much of that Turkish cement is shutting down. It is simply not profitable to make or ship it anymore. 
That may not sound like a big deal, but it is when you're already dealing with a short supply of a lot of building materials and runaway inflation. So could some American company stand to benefit or fill in those gaps? Bring in Catherine Thompson, CEO and founder of Thompson Research Group, one of the country's leading specialty research firms. Catherine, good morning. The global supply chain is sort of the, 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 the curtain has been pulled back dramatically in the last two years on the global supply chain. This is one of these stories that you brought to our attention. I'd never heard of this. No clue that we needed Turkish cement so badly. What is the current situation? Because American builders could be in trouble this summer. Yeah, so um, certainly it's a kinetic event. Uh, and here's, if you, if you lay the groundwork first, first off, the U.S. can't produce enough cement just to meet internal demand. So you have to import goods. And so that's where Turkish cement comes in. The second compounding situation is that we're in the middle, middle of a building boom, whether public construction, residential, or non-res. That's unprecedented in the past 20 years to have all three of those happening at the same time. And then U.S. cement plants are now having failures or extended outages because they have been running so hard. So that leaves us now with uh, being even more dependent on imports. What does this mean? What does it size up? Uh, in total, it's 3 to 5% of U.S. production, but 80% of that cement goes to the port of Houston, one of the hottest areas for growth, kind of that Texas region, which is seeing explosive growth. That's as much as 20 to 25% of the consumption meeting the needs in that market in and of itself. We on this hour have been talking a lot about electricity prices, both here and in Europe. I know it's a, it's kind of a boring topic for a lot of people, but it matters because it matters. It goes into everything. How much is the price of electricity, even here, by the way, Catherine, affecting many of these types of markets? I mean, cement, I've got to imagine, takes massive amounts of literal electricity power to make it. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So a cement plant runs 24-7. Um, and so what's driving up cost in Ukraine is Russian coal. Uh, in the U.S., you have a combination of factors that run plants, but still those are incredibly expensive. Um, a lot of it's run by natural gas, but you have some with coal. But you have an increasing number of plants using alternative energy, but it's still not enough. So let's talk about filling in those gaps. You mentioned that the market was already tight. This is before the war began. Uh, you and I have been talking for years about some of these companies in the United States. But what about like a, a Cemex of Mexico? You know, we're starting to realize that our partners in Canada and Mexico may be even more valuable than we thought before. Yeah. So Cemex has a significant presence in the U.S. and particularly in the Southwest. Uh, exactly. And, and they have some very strong operations in Texas. They produce cement, but they also uh, produce other products like crushed rock and concrete. So they're going to be a really important part of the overall solution. Um, you know, there's a few other domestic players like Summit Materials, Eagle Materials, and Martin Marietta. But Cemex uh, is going to be an important partner uh, just across the board from us in coming up with solutions to meet this shortfall. Yeah, truly incredible that the, the global supply chain has become so... I mean, like I said, we pulled back the curtain, but we've also realized how fragile it might be. Cement, who would have thought about it? But we are watching those names. Thanks to you, Catherine Thompson. Have a great day. Do appreciate it. Great.
Thanks. All right, so materials, MLM, Eagle, and CX. All right, still ahead. Good news for Tesla stock fans. Elon Musk defined that stretch global supply chain, pulling off some big numbers. We'll tell you about them next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Francis Rivera with your news headlines this Monday. Police in Sacramento are looking for multiple suspects after a mass shooting left six people dead and a dozen wounded. Officers say a large fight broke out just as bars were closing Sunday in the busy downtown area. Three of the dead are men and another three are women. Similar shootings with several victims rocked multiple other cities this weekend. Chicago police say a man allegedly shot two people and fired at officers at an apartment complex. Officers later shot and killed the gunman. Both victims are in critical condition. And Dallas police are investigating a shooting at a concert that killed one person and left 11 others injured. Police say it happened after someone fired a gun into the air and another person fired a gun into the crowd. A travel nightmare this weekend. Thousands were left stranded at airports across the country after airlines canceled over 3,300 flights. Thousands more were delayed. Bad weather in Florida caused some issues, while Southwest Airlines also blamed tech issues. The 64th annual Grammy Awards were held in Las Vegas and hosted by Trevor Noah last night. Silk Sonic, the retro soul duo Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, won four awards, including record and song of the year for the hit single Leave the Door Open. And in her Grammy's debut, Olivia Rodrigo performed her hit Driver's License before being awarded Best Pop Solo Performance for the song. She also won New Artist and Best Pop Vocal Album. And finally, two of college basketball's best battled it out for the women's national title. UConn put up a fight, but were no match for South Carolina. The Gamecocks won the championship 64-49. It is the school's second title and the first since 2017. Brian, for Monday morning. Those are your headlines. We send it back to you. A lot going on, Francis. Thank you very much. And congrats to USC, the other USC, the real one, as I will say on the East Coast. Francis, thank you very much. Sure thing. All right, on deck, Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is here on what he calls a commodity super cycle and why regulation in D.C. is one big reason oil and gas prices are likely headed even higher. We're back right after this. Is a recession ahead? What the bond market is saying and not saying about the future. Is $5 gasoline on the way? Oil sticking around 100 bucks a barrel. And Jeff Curry is here with why prices may be heading a lot higher. And speaking of no oil, Tesla all charged up. The EV maker setting a new delivery record, despite what Elon Musk calls a difficult quarter. It is Monday, April 4th. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. 
All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Hope you're having a good start to your day. And by the way, a happy 53rd wedding anniversary to my parents, mom and dad. It's their 53rd wedding anniversary today. If you're watching, love you guys. All right, let's get right now to your Monday money and see how things are starting their week out. Futures necessarily not in love. We're seeing stock futures pretty much mixed. By the way, we're one for one in April. We're batting a thousand so far. I've had one day, and the markets all rose on Friday. And We'll see what happens today. Also, we're watching to see what happens with oil, because really oil prices seem to be controlling the stock market right now. We're going to see if oil can stay below 100 bucks. We're not. Well, we are. We're at 98.98 right now. COVID lockdowns in China still probably the main driver of prices, and we're seeing, of course, you know, Shanghai still locked down. People can't get food. Not allowed to leave their apartment buildings. Just a total uh, disaster in many parts of China. You've also got the release of the American Oil Reserve starting in mid-May. Remember that SPR release that we've talked about probably just under a million barrels a day based on the numbers coming out starting May 15th. So that's when you're going to start to see that, that new release that the president talked about last week really start to take effect. Of course, got to see if there's even the pipeline capacity to take that. We'll get more on oil with Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs in just one minute. But right now, we've got some big breaking news. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon releasing his annual letter to shareholders moments ago. This is widely watched. It is widely read. I'm stalling so my friend Leslie Picker has more time to comb through the letter. <laughs> Leslie Picker, what, what are we seeing as a headline? You know what I'm doing? I'm like, she's reading the letter. What, uh, what are some of the headlines from Jamie's widely read letter? I got, I got you, Brian. All 44 pages here in Jamie Dimon's annual letter to shareholders this morning. In it, he describes what he sees as three important and conflicting forces. One, a strong U.S. economy. Two, high inflation and raising, rising interest rates and the reversal of QE. And three, the war in Ukraine. As for the U.S. economy, he describes the consumer as being in, quote, excellent financial shape on average. He said consumer spending over the last few months is 12% above pre-COVID levels. He wrote that housing prices surged and asset prices remained high, some in bubble territory without detailing which specific assets he believed were frothy. That segues into a section on monetary policy. Diamond wrote, quote, the stronger the recovery, the higher the rates that follow. He believes this could be significantly higher than the markets expect and the stronger the Q quantitative tightening. He adds that this process will cause lots of consternation and very volatile markets, but he believes the Fed should have ultimate flexibility in raising rates rather than be beholden to 25 basis point hikes and raising on a regular schedule, for example. Lastly, geopolitics. Diamond, Diamond shared a multi-pronged plan for what he called the Russia challenge. This included increasing our military budget and troop deployment to NATO's borders, direct uh, billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine, turn up the sanctions, and that Marshall Plan, I know that you and I, Brian, have talked about uh, over the last week for energy security here in the U.S. In, and in Europe. This is something he is said to have been communicating to the Biden administration two weeks ago. As for the firm itself, Diamond says he's not worried about direct exposure to Russia, although he says J.P. Morgan could still lose about a billion dollars over time. Doesn't describe what overtime means and, and where those uh, expenses, where those costs would stem from, but a, a number we haven't seen before, Brian. Oh, well, I'm speaking of numbers, 44-page letter. I don't know if that's the most, what is it, voluminous I've never written a 44-page letter, but let's go back to the billion-dollar loss. 
The stock is down about a percent right now. You should see right my now. thank I mean, you notes, Brian. That's kind of a big no, thing to just throw in there. <laughs> Sorry, what was it? That's a, that's a big thing to just throw in there. The the forty four page letter. No, the billion dollar loss, potentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, compared to some of its peers, it is much smaller. We don't know exactly where that loss would come from, whether it's counterparty risk or actual exposure in the region. Citibank, for example, Citigroup has about $10 billion in exposure in the region. Some of that has to do with the fact that they're trying to exit their consumer bank. Some of it has to do with the fact that they do have, um, you know, significant client exposure and things like that that just do take a long time to wind down. Um, But, you know, as far as the other banks, we are seeing some, you know, numbers thrown out there here and there. This was a new one for J.P. Morgan. So let's talk about the macro takeaway, Leslie. I know, obviously, listen, 44 pages, good grief. I'm sure you'll be on the air all day here on CNBC, and we look forward to it. But it sounded like he was pretty cautious. I mean, would you summarize? You don't have to speak for Jamie, obviously, but would you summarize it based on what you said? I'm sort of taking away. There's, a, there's some worry there. He's, he's nervous. Yeah. About His job is to be nervous. I get it. But he is, on, on a macro level, it seemed a little bit pessimistic. I would agree with that. And I think his comments really do echo what we've seen from a lot of industry leaders over the last few weeks, whether it be Larry Fink, Howard Marks, now Jamie Dimon, really talking a lot about companies need to be rethinking their supply chains. They need to be rethinking their alliances. Do you want to have so much exposure in your supply chain with a nation that doesn't necessarily agree with the values and the the ethos of, you know, the American way, as we've seen, you know, first with the pandemic and now, of course, with this geopolitical situation, it gets increasingly complicated when you start, um, you know, doing business with countries that may not have the same ideals as we have here. Now, we've been doing that for decades and it's been fine, but you start to hear this kind of drumbeat from leaders saying, maybe it's time to rethink that. For better, for worse, most people agree, though, that would be an inflationary aspect, this decoupling of the supply chain. Yeah. We we just talked about it. Why We desperately need new housing in America and we could have a shortage of cement because of supply issues from Turkey. It is that global connected chain. 44-page letter Leslie Picker, we'll let you get back. We appreciate you breaking the news for us. Leslie, thank you. Have a great day. All right. Now to this morning's big money mover and shares of Tesla following a record quarter for deliveries. Bertha Coombs is here now with that. And I got to imagine, Bertha, it's kind of despite all we just talked about, it's pretty good news that Tesla somehow keeps pulling this off. It really is, Brian. Tesla says it delivered just more than 310,000 vehicles and produced just more than 305,000 vehicles in the first quarter of 2022. That compared with just about 184,000 deliveries the same time last year. The company says Model 3 and Model Y vehicles comprised 95% or 295,000 of those first quarter deliveries, which are close approximation to sales figures. Wall Street analysts were expecting deliveries to come in between 278,000 and 357,000 for the first three months of the year. Now on Twitter, CEO Elon Musk, to your point, Brian, says the nearly 70% delivery jump came despite a, quote, extremely difficult quarter due to supply chain interruptions and China's zero COVID policy. 
Tesla shares uh, were up fractionally in the pre-market. Yep, they're up a, a bit at this hour, just about flat on the year, though. The company reports its next quarterly results on April 20th. And Brian, a uh, quick update. Tesla had hoped to resume production in Shanghai uh, Monday at their Gigafactory there. It's been closed since March 28th due to those partial citywide COVID lockdowns and remained closed on Monday. Yeah, the, the chi- what's happening still with COVID in China and the lockdowns is, is truly remarkable. And I don't mean that in a good way, but Tesla somehow pulling it off. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. All right, on deck, why oil and gasoline prices are likely headed higher and why D.C. and Wall Street may be big reasons for it. Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry on that next. All right, it's time now for your morning RBI. And today, let's get random but interesting with some stock ideas, because you can never have too many stock ideas, right? And all these have one thing in common. They are ESG-based, environmental, social, and governance-focused. And whatever you may think of ESG as a whole, it is booming. According to Cowan and Company, money flows into ESG funds, or ETFs, rose 35% last year from 2020, more than $70 billion, and it is only on the rise. And the good folks at Cowan have just released a big new report on ESG with a bunch of stocks they love. In fact, there are more than 60 stocks that they say they are some of their best ideas going forward. Obviously, we don't have a five-hour-long show, so we can't hit all 63. So we picked out the six that we found most interesting, or at least I did. I, I got to pick them. So here's my name. So, all right, let's go. ESG-related stocks that Cowan & Company loves right now include Calumet Specialty Products, CLMT, refining company as ESG, yes, because Cowan says they are transforming a Montana refinery to renewable diesel. Cummins, the big engine maker, could play a big role in the shift toward more electric vehicles. You need engines regardless. EVGo, the electric charging station company, Cowan likes them and likes that they are dealing directly with the auto manufacturers in building out charging station plans. ITRON. Cowan says they'll benefit from more spending by utilities to upgrade and get smarter. ITRON kind of helps software and hardware move power around. MP Materials. You know it. This is the Mountain Pass, which is what the MP stands for, California Rare Earth Mining Company, that we have been to twice. They make neodymium that go into batteries, and they're going to be breaking ground soon on a big new Texas facility. And one more. Pure Cycle Tech. This company turns waste polypropylene into a more pure resin. So really a chemical ESG company. Hard to believe, but true. There are obviously 57 more names that Cowan analysts like. You can reach out to them to find out. But we thought with our insider buying segment on hiatus for a couple of weeks because it happens every earnings season. Remember, we got to go dark at the end of earnings quarters. You can never have too many good stock ideas. So we hope that is random and interesting and maybe for you, Random but profitable. All right, on deck, Lindsay Bell is here to solve the big mystery of why stock splits are suddenly so in vogue again. And during April, we're celebrating Financial Literacy Month, featuring some of our CBC contributors. Here's Stephanie Link with how she learned about money. Here's how I learned about money and how to invest, especially for the long term. Right out of college, my father suggested that I take money out of my paycheck and put it into the S&P 500 into an ETF and just dollar cost average each month. 
put it away. He said, you'll never see it. You won't miss it. And he said it could be $5. It could be $25. Point of investing over the long term and not worrying about the day-to-day movements in the markets. I still, to this day, use this process in my investment style. All right, welcome or welcome back, and good Monday morning, by the way. Let's get now to your broader markets and money. The yield on the two-year Treasury note hitting its highest level in more than two years today. It is pushing higher in expectations. The Federal Reserve will push through with bigger rate hikes to try to control out-of-control inflation. The yield curve, well, remember that. That is the spread between the two-year and the 10-year note is roughly six basis points. That's it. Remember, when the Yield on the shorter notes goes above yield on the longer notes. Many people view that as a sign of a coming recession. Let's bring in now Lindsay Bell, Chief Markets and Money Strategist at Ally Invest and a CNBC contributor. Lindsay, you might have heard. I don't know. Did you hear, have you heard about this inverted yield curve? I've heard it like once or twice <laughs> on CNBC over the past yeah. week or so. I don't know what to, it's predicted 15 <laughs> of the last 12 recessions. Uh, it is. A, it is. <laughs> and by the way, the real yield is not inverted. It is a powerful sign. How much are you banking on it? Is it a hundred percent tell? Uh, well, you know, it's hard to say, Brian. I've, you know, people have been talking about this significantly because it does have a really strong history of predicting recessions. The question is, is this time different, right? Those are always famous last words. Um, but there are some unique things happening in the yield curve at this point in time that have to be taken into consideration. So you, you look at both sides of the yield curve, right? On the short end, you kind of mentioned it. Maybe people are starting to overreact. A lot of investors think that the Fed is way behind the curve in containing inflation. And so you're, you're seeing pressure on yields move to the upside here. You're seeing sellers on that side, side of the market. On the other side of the market, the 30-year yield, um, it, it's moving up swiftly too, obviously not as swiftly as the short end of the curve. But when I look at that fast move, look, we were at 2% on the 30-year yield when we entered this year. We're at about 244 which, again, not as fast of a move as what we've seen in the two-year, but still a pretty good move. And when I combine that with some of the other macro indicators, yeah. like the jobs report that we got on Friday, I'm like, you know what? Growth doesn't seem to be significantly at risk, but you do have the Fed that owns a significant portion of that side of the curve. You've got a natural buyer in, in um, international investors yeah. because real yields around the globe are still super negative. So, you know, there's there's a lot of give and take on both sides. And I think that's why some investors just, are having a hard time agreeing with this. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just I don't know what's going to come. I, I know this, Lindsay, my car is dying. It, it's 11 years old. It's I mean, it's I could smell oil. The, it's got probably a leaking valve. I mean, it's just all these problems. But then I look to get a car and prices are out of control. Go out to eat out of control. Grocery store out of control. Rents out of control. Flights are, I mean, everything, I, I just look out and see higher prices everywhere, and I just wonder how long can the American consumer absorb this kind of inflation without it ultimately trickling down to companies' profits, company sales, and yes, the stock market. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because the consumer has been really resilient. Hot inflation has been around for almost a year now, if you really think about it. And the consumer has been able to absorb a lot of those higher prices. And I'm like you, Brian, I'm super frustrated with the higher prices that I'm seeing everywhere as well. 
But consumer spending has remained elevated, elevated above uh, the levels that we saw pre-pandemic. So the consumer, from a spending perspective, still feels pretty good. Now we look at the sentiment numbers and the confidence numbers, and and they've gotten much more weak, especially when you look at the Michigan sentiment indicator, um, which has also, by the way, historically, when it's negative, is an indicator of a recession, and it's been it's been declining since since August. So that's something we have to watch. Consumers do, though, have over two trillion dollars in extra cushion in cash right now. Their debt to income ratio is at a significantly low level versus history, so they do have room to take credit out here. But you don't want to see you what you don't want to see is that they u- utilize all that extra savings and excess cash. On higher prices, yeah. right? That's not the most productive use use of cash. So no. I think the consumer can remain strong. Corporations have benefited from this, right? Um, but but I think that there's all, there's only going to be a certain window of time that they have um, to to uh, yeah. rely on the consumer. And you and you look at it's not and, and higher rates as well. And, and by the way, April twenty first of last year, Lindsay, on this show, we we unveiled our wall of inflation. That was April of last year. We were we're going to do it again, April twenty first. I think a couple Thursdays and show you year over year. It's going to be brutal, I know. But it's also higher rates. It's not. It's revolving credit. Credit card interest rates are going to go up. Any if you've got a a, a mortgage that resets every year. That's going to go up massively. I just can you look out six months and have any visibility on the consumer and thus the economy? You know, I think it's it's really going to come down to um, what what happens with inflation. I think that's really going to be the telltale sign. I do hear you said some credit credit. Uh, Credit interest rates—they're definitely going up. I know I got—I uh, have a uh, credit card with one of a, a certain retailer at, at the mall, and uh, they just informed me. I don't keep a balance there, but they informed me that the interest rate there is going up significantly, and so this is going yep. to be a worry for consumers down the road. But I'm going to keep my eye first and foremost on inflation because there are signs that it is expected to peak here in the first quarter. And so I think in the months ahead, we might see some relief. You're starting to see some of the transportation and shipping costs come down a little bit. I know they're still really elevated versus history, but they're down significantly from the peaks. And hopefully they continue that trend. Oil prices Hopefully we get a little bit of relief. I think that's still a, a big wild card with the geopolitical tensions. Yeah. But also we're starting to cycle, like you just mentioned, easier comparisons. Also higher inflation in and of itself does a good job of dampening demand. So, And then the Fed's raising rates too. And you're already seeing uh, a slowdown in the housing market yeah. because of the move in, in mortgage mortgage rates. So so I think there's give and take. It's, yeah. We're in a wait and see mode, unfortunately, Brian. That's an uncomfortable position to be in. No, it is. And by the way, speaking of oil, I just want to tell our viewers, because we've teased him a few times, we are, we were going to have Jeff Curry of Goldman on today. Uh, We hope to have him still. We're running out of time. But Jeff, if you're out there listening, we'll get you back on tomorrow to talk about oil and gas, having some technical issues. I just want to tell our viewers and say we're we're working on it. So, Lindsay, you and I are getting a lot of time, my friend. So let's continue this conversation. (laughs) We are. I love it. I feel like the angel. uh, It's great. You know, it's, hey, by the way, it's 545 in the morning, whatever time it is. Why not? Uh, I feel like the angel of doom, <laughs> right. right? I'm like talking about higher this and higher that. Let's be optimistic, right? Because we all talked about, or a lot of us talked about, this idea of the roaring 20s. And that was kind of before inflation roared in. And, of course, obviously, uh, before Putin decided to, to start his unwinnable war in Ukraine. 
what's the positive side? What's the if you had to say this is the most reason to be bullish about the consumer, the stock market or both, Lindsay, what would it be? Well, you know, I am, you probably know, I'm, I'm sort of the half glass full type of gal anyway. So it's a great question for me, right? And I, I talked about a lot of it. You know, I'm very optimistic that inflation can come down, especially in the latter part of the year. Um, and, and so to me, that's something that can give the consumer relief. And the consumer is still in a really, really healthy position versus where they were when they entered the pandemic. I talked about their cash cushion. I, I talked about, um, you know, they've just absorbed much better uh, money and financial education over the last couple of years. And they've, they, they've, they're really putting that to good use. And you're seeing that, some, by the way, in, in the tax refunds that they're getting. They're saving a lot of it. They're using it to pay down some of their debt. And then they're also partially using it um, to invest to an extent. Yeah. But then also, don't forget the corporate side of the equation. Companies have significant more cash than they did before or after the great financial crisis when they were building up their balance sheets again. So companies are in a very, very healthy position as well. So they're able to to handle rocky roads ahead if necessary, but they've also benefited from yeah. higher prices. You're seeing sales grow up and, and margin expansion has been nothing short of impressive over the last year and a half, despite higher costs and, and supply chain snarls and all the th- things that they've had to contend with, too. And I think we're going to see another year of margin expansion to new record levels for the companies just at a time when valuation has come down. That's been the one gift of the volatile market that we've experienced over the, the first part of the year here is that valuations have come back down to earth, still maybe elevated by a long-term perspective. We're standing at about 20 times uh, on a forward 12-month basis for the S&P 500 right now. It's in line with its five-year average, though, and I would argue that with sales growth as robust as it's going to be in the year ahead, as well as margin expansion, you can still have that yeah. premium, even if interest rates are going up, because at the end of the day, Brian, real yields are still negative. They, they are, and that's the key. The number we show on the screen is not the real yield when you factor in inflation. And I know the yield curve is mildly inverted right now, but on a real basis, it is not. And I know it's a little bit wonky and boring, especially at 5.56 or whatever in the morning, but our viewers have got to understand that the real yields are not inverted. I don't know how much time we have left in the show, maybe 10 seconds, who knows. Can you give us one area of the market you like more than others right now, Lindsay, quickly? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at consumer discretionary because there's parts of it that have been significantly beaten up that I think are unwarranted. And I think it's kind of been left behind because of all the things we just talked about, um, interest rates going up, impacting credit, and then and, and, and also higher inflation impacting wallets. So I'm looking there for big surprises uh, this earnings season. Yeah. I don't know if it's you, but I'm, I'm getting things in the mail that are like, we'll generously loan you 20 year, you know, money for 20 years at 6.99%. You're welcome from the credit card companies. And it's a rip right in the garbage. Uh, Lindsay Bell, Ally Invest, a great and unexpectedly long segment, Lindsay. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Good stuff. No, thank you. I'm- Lindsay Bell just rolling with it, killing it. Love it, Lindsay. Thank you. By the way, we'll try to get Jeff Curry back on for you tomorrow. Tech does not always work the way you want. It's the way things happen, even in television. Well, thank you for joining in. Thanks for watching Worldwide Exchange. We will see you again tomorrow, 5 a.m. Eastern time. Squawk Box is next.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.